So um, Lisa's been telling me for years that she wants a Jeep. That was not her on that little edge of a road there. But you can see we're starting a new ser series today, and the, the topic is going to be guardrails, and I think we'll have some fun with some of the things that we have a, a chance to look at. But, but first, today's the 25th, and you know me, I always want to dip into the book of Proverbs, and since it's the 25th, we'll pick one out of chapter 25, and here's the one I picked for us for today. Verse 19, putting confidence in an unreliable person in times of trouble is like chewing with a broken tooth or walking on a lame foot. I think I've done both of those before, and it's just not pretty. It's just not good. We're going to define what a guardrail is. I think you know what a guardrail is, but let's just define it for our purposes and say uh, a guardrail is a system designed to keep vehicles from straying, that's a word we're going to key on, straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. You know, the thing about them is that nobody really pays attention to guardrails until you need one. They're pretty much invisible. They're, just, they're there. You don't think about them. They just kind of dis disappear. But we're really glad they're there when the time comes that we actually need one. But for the most part, we just kind of ignore them. There's generally three areas where you'll see um, guardrails. Uh, you'll see them like if there's a bridge, bridge coming like a bridge ahead sign. And, and um, the reason is that when you go over a bridge, there's very little margin for error. So it's good to have somebody protect you when there's no margin. And in areas where there's medians, like a median would be like um, you've got somebody coming at you going the opposite direction at a high speed. That's a lot of times you'll see a, a, a barrier there or a, a, a guardrail there. And because the closer you are to people that are moving in the opposite direction, the more you need protection. And then curves, places in the road where there's unexpected changes guardrails. They're all there to uh, protect us from things. And, and it's interesting that, you know, if you think about guardrails, they're pretty remarkable. They, the, the, the people that put them up, they put them in places that are generally not the most dangerous part of the road. The place where the guardrail is actually constructed, you could probably, if the guardrail wasn't there, you could drive your car on it and you'd be okay. It's not there to protect that piece of territory right underneath the guardrail. It's there to protect something, protect you from something on the other side of it. So it's interesting that they're in the safe zone. The, the guardrail is built somewhere in the safe territory, but it, and it's there to, to protect us from the off-limits, off dangerous real estate that's back on the other side. Places like drop-offs, oncoming traffic, all kinds of places that could hurt us if we accidentally got off of the safe area and we got over to the edge and somehow we bumped that that guardrail. It's there to protect us from danger. Nobody would argue ab against guardrails. I mean, nobody would say, hey, pull those guardrails down off that bridge. Just give me a nice little yellow line on the edge because I think I'm going to drive with my tires on the actual edge of the bridge. Nobody thinks that way, right? Everybody says, yeah, guardrails are a good thing. I don't ever intend to use them, but you're not going to do without them. And they cost a lot of money, but I still want them there. We like having a little bit of a margin for error. We like and appreciate the fact that if we actually hit the guardrail, we'll do a little bit of damage, but it's a whole lot less damage than if we go, you know, the other side of it. That whole idea is to create a little bit of damage in order to avoid a whole lot more damage to either your car or your body or whatever's going on in your life. And, you know, I, I would guess that for you, if we kind of shift our thinking about just from physical cars to living, I would guess for you that some of your areas of greatest regret, the chances are that some of the areas of your greatest regret in your life, places that you've maybe been, been hurt or, or driven off someplace with your life and um, 
that those greatest areas of regret financially, morally, in your marriage, in your relationships, with your time, whatever, those could have been avoided if there had been a guardrail in your life that had kept you from wandering all the way over when you went over that place. Or maybe you were hurt because somebody else lacked a guardrail. You know, I'm prompted to stop just for a minute because I know that um, there are people in this room, and I know one person this week who um, had a, a real close call with, with um, this is not part of the message, but I know someone sitting here today who had a real close call at work could have been really hurt really badly, and the Lord protected him. And I just want to pray. Lord, I want to thank you that uh, your, your word does teach that all things work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purposes. I thank you, God, for saving and preserving my brother from injury at work this week. He could have been killed or really hurt bad, bad. and I'm I'm grateful, Lord, that that didn't happen. And I know of a couple of injuries that happened at work this week. Thank you for watching over your sheep. We we trust you. You are the faithful one in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's good sometimes to just um, acknowledge that the Lord protects us, because that happened at least in a couple of circumstances this week. I saw one picture floating around Facebook of somebody with a nail through their finger. It was pretty, <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> and then the x-rays were, you know, really, really cool. And if you're on those um, lists, uh, you got to see some pretty cool x-rays. <laughs> Great looking stuff. Okay, so if there had been some guardrails, you might have avoided some things. You might have avoided some pain in your life. You know, I don't, I don't know if it was financially or in your marriage or what the area would have been. But if there had been guardrails you might have been preserved from some difficulties. And I want to take this very common imagery of, of a guardrail and try to apply it to our lives. We'll have a little bit of time and fun with that. And in that context, rather than a car, in the context of our lives, I want to give us another definition of a guardrail. So here it is. A guardrail is a personal standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. A personal standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. And I'm going to encourage you as we talk to think about you know, this in terms of your marriage or your dating life or your relationships or your friendships or your time or what you, whatever. I'm going to encourage you to think through a personal standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience to you. This is something internal that I want to encourage. You know, and the reason that I'm saying conscience in driving this thing is that the whole idea is that if you hit a guardrail that when you hit there, there's going to be a minor amount of pain, but it's way better than the more destructive things that are on the other side. So and I want to help you begin thinking in terms of behavior, you know, your own standards, so that when you set these standards and you start to brush up against a guardrail that you have chosen in your life, a standard you have set, that when you brush up against it, it's your heart that gets bothered. You start to feel like um, guilty or you start to feel something like, okay, I had set myself a standard, and I'm now bruising up against this, and I don't like the way this feels. And it signals and ignites something in your conscience. I'm not talking about condemnation. I'm talking about something that you have predetermined is right and righteous for you. And hopefully those, those decisions will come from what we know to be the Word of God. Um, and so that when that happens whether it's your marriage or your finances or your time or all these different areas, these internal red lights in your soul start to flash. And you start seeing something that says, oh, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. 
And then you'll start thinking, okay, if I don't make some sort of adjustments here, I'm going to have way more trouble than I'm already gargling. So, I, you know, so I've got to make a change. That's, that's what I'm hoping will be the reaction as you set these standards. And you know, these guardrails I'm talking about are personal. They're not for anybody else. The only exception I would say to that is if the Lord has given you an office of charge over someone else. For example, you're a mother or you're a father. That's a primary example where you would set guardrails for somebody else. This is personal. This is for you to determine for you. And it's to help you avoid these areas from which you might not be able to recover or areas from which you would have regret for the rest of your life. That's what we're talking about here. Not talking about the little things here. We're talking about the major. Because remember, we just, just a minute ago, I just was talking about it. You probably could have saved yourself some heartache had there been some, some guardrails in the past. So the point will be that, it's, that as you bump, you're going to be bumping against, uh, up against the own, your own decisions, your own standards of saying, here's an area that I just don't want my life to go. We'll get a little, little help from that, from the Word of God. Now, our culture, our culture has some guardrails, they think. There are some, some common things that you hear out there in our culture, and they're meant with a good intention to be a guardrail. And, um, that, but they're really, really weak. Okay, so let's just take a look at a couple of them. Here's one. Drink responsibly, okay? Now, um, please hold on, because alcohol is in the text that we're talking about today, but hold on for the whole ride, okay? I'm going to make some comments about alcohol today. I'm likely going to be controversial, and so I would ask this of you. When the sermon sermon is over, if I've driven you crazy, come and tell me. I'm serious. And if I've driven you crazy, and you feel like you've got to tell somebody else what Pastor Terry said at church, please let me speak for myself. Don't tell them what I said. Say, he said some stuff. Here's the message. You've got to hear this. So that it's me saying what I said, okay? That's my request of you. Um, but, uh, okay, so drink responsibly. And I, I have to say, that, I really don't think like, that's much of a guardrail. That's like, that's like the little painted yellow line instead of a guardrail on the side of a bridge. It's really, really weak. I mean, the problem is, if you aren't sure what drinking responsibly is... Um, what's irresponsible? I don't know. So you get to the point where all of a sudden you realize you're a little bit being irresponsible. The problem with alcohol is that at that point, you don't care anymore. You say, hey, honey, I think we're drinking irresponsibly, but you know what? I don't care. I mean, that's the problem with setting that kind of a yellow-painted line to be your guardrail. So drink, responsibi- drink responsibly. Okay, well, that's, a, that's not a bad idea. I mean, it's a great suggestion, but that's not what I'm talking about here. For guardrails. Here's another one. Our, our culture says, and this one's directed at young people, to uh, p- p- particularly teenagers. Don't have sex until you're ready. Okay. I mean, how do you go about figuring out for a teenager or a young person when you're ready? This is from the world's c- perspective, by the way. I'm not suggesting this is the way that Scripture tells us to think. I mean, come on. Most teenage boys would tell you they were born ready. I mean, there's that, that's no guardrail. There's no guardrail there. Here's another one that you hear a lot. Parents, talk to your kids about drugs. Okay. I mean, to me, that's, that's just another non-guardrail guardrail. That's just a conversation. It's like, yeah, my kids, my kids all take drugs, but I talk to them about it, and I'm happy with that. I mean, it's just not a guardrail. And, you know, these, these, um, these are all like that little yellow line on the freeway. 
instead of something to protect you from somebody going 60 miles an hour in the opposite direction. And the reason that I'm pointing these out is because our culture really does not like these. Our culture does not want limits. Our culture does not want a firm decision or declaration of what's right or righteous. And not. Our culture doesn't want that. And so when we set a standard as a church, or you do as a Christian in your, in your workplace, or where you hang out, or where you, you know, where you play, the people you hang out with, when you set a standard, the, the world's culture tends to look at that and say, you know, that's stupid. They look at our standards, and they also go on. They say, you know, this is exactly the problem with religion. You're a bunch of wackos. You know, you just, you're out of touch. And uh, this is also stupid, this stuff. But those same people would agree with you that on the other side of the guardrail is some really bad stuff. And I don't just mean a cliff. I mean broken marriages and broken hearts. Things like they, they would agree that there's stuff over there. Here's another one. You know, when it comes to money, our culture says, you know, consolidate your debt. Might make practical sense to deal with an existing problem, but... You know, it's like, it's like the guardrail is, there's an acceptable dosage that our culture will accept, and that's about it. Saying consolidate your debt does nothing to help you from getting out of debt or from not getting there in the first place. And so the culture looks at, those, looks at the kinds of guardrails that I'm going to suggest, and they say, well, those are a little bit too restrictive, they're too narrow, they're too legalistic, too confining, they're too something so I, I guess like every week you hear me talk about the culture and I'm going to just rail against that because I'm going to challenge you to do something that many of us in this room have been doing for a number of years and that's to form some personal standards that when you bump up against them they will inform your conscience. You form some standards. It's like when you begin some behavior that doesn't bother anybody at your office, doesn't bother any of your friends, doesn't bother anybody in the school, but it begins to bother you because you've set some personal standards that these issues have now become a matter of conscience. And there are, some, there are a lot of passages in the Bible. This is, this, what I'm ta- talking to you about today is all over the Word of God. It's all over. But, but, but it causes some real confusion. Some people are really, really confused about some of these things and because they just don't understand or believe that God truly invites you to talk to Him and relate to Him like your Heavenly Father. They don't get that. And um, but so let's just kind of look at it at that level. What do good fathers do or say to keep their children out of the danger zone? I'm you know thinking, okay, I'm going to set up some barriers for my kids because if I'm going to have a conflict with my kids, if in the role of a parent, over time there's going to be times where we just don't agree. Anybody here ever parented before? You know that you will have times with your children and they just don't see it or agree with it. So a heavenly, a, not, not a heavenly, an earthly, a good father or mother says, okay, I'm going to set some barriers because when the conflict comes with my child, I want it on this side of the barrier. I don't want to go down to the bottom of the canyon and pick up the pieces. It's way better to do it here. So God does the same. And uh, um, when Lisa and I, um, you know, our kids now are adults, when we were at the place of setting barriers with our kids, um, we, um, we, we, we were really okay with the fact that there could be some conflict because, you know, a little itty-bitty 
crash up here is way better. It's so much better than going down in the bottom of that canyon. It's just no fun because down at the bottom of the canyon, sometimes there are things there that people can never recover from, things that affect people for their entire life. So, um, so since this is all over Scripture, I would say to you that, and the fact that God loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you like a loving father, isn't this what we would expect from him? So I, I think the answer to that is yes. Now, you don't even have to have relationship with God. You don't even have to have religious convictions for what I'm going to teach today to actually work. This will work for anybody. It's scriptural and it's true. The Bible's full of this. Today we're going to get into Ephesians 5. And uh, let me set some context for you about Ephesians. This is is another one of the uh, books in the New Testament that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote. And he wrote it it in the form of a letter to the Christians at the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a city that... uh, was a very large city. In fact, it was probably the second largest populated city in the world at the time, Rome being the first. When I say the second largest, it's, it was somewhere between 250 and 400,000 people. Now, that's a major city today. But can you imagine what it must have been like having that many people in a city, you know, before freeways and all, all the infrastructure that, and all of the food delivery systems? I mean, that's a massive, massive city. And uh, they were... Their culture was different than today. They were actually more amoral than our culture is today, if you can believe that. Here's some examples of things that you and I would think of as, um, as off-limits. Um, extramarital affairs, extramarital sex, for example, um, were considered normal there. In fact, some of those activities were considered to be a religious experience. And uh, so they were pretty far out. Now, Paul has written this letter... And he started this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he's, it starts off with a list, and I'm not going to go through the first part of Ephesians chapter 5, but basically it's a list of do this, don't do that, be honest, love your wife, do all of these things that you would expect to hear, be kind to people, don't do things that would destroy your marriage, all that kind of stuff. And as, 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 as his audience is reading this letter, they might be going, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it, but they're probably scratching their head going, you know what, do you know where I live? Do you know what it's like around here? How in the world do we do this in a culture that not only doesn't honor the things you're saying, that the culture is against those kinds of things? And um, in, uh, in his teaching here, he explains the answer to that question, how do we do it? But he also teaches the principle that we're going to be talking about today. And he gives an example. He gives one example that for some of us in this room, it might be disturbing. For me, it's not disturbing, and I'll explain about that a little bit later. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting up in about verse 15. Here we go. Be very careful. The word careful there means don't be careless. Be very careful. Then how you live. Now live is um, a little Greek word, peripateo, and what it literally means is Tread around or walk. Be careful how you walk. When I read this verse, this is literally what the concept means. This is what I think. Be careful how you walk. Um, we got two dogs at home, and uh, we, have, we had a worker come to the house recently, and he had to go around the backyard for a reason, and there's an area in the backyard that's got mines in it. <laughs> and I had to say to him, be careful where you walk. Okay. So Paul is saying to the people in this amoral city, be careful where you walk. Be careful where you put your feet. Um, okay, be careful where you walk. And as you walk through life, 
as you deal with your marriage, as you deal with relationships, as you deal with your money, be careful where you walk. Be careful how you walk. Okay, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. This word, making the most of opportunity, that literally means redeeming your time. Which today, in our culture, would be like saying, be very intentional with how you use your time because of the things that God has called you to do, because of the things that God has called you to be, because God wants to protect you and God wants to direct you. Then in every arena of life, he's saying, don't, don't be careless, don't be a fool, pay attention to how you're living your life, how do you walk, okay? So he says, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Paul says, you Ephesians are living in dangerous times. If you're not careful... You're going to drive your car right into the ditch. If you're not careful, if you're careless, ah, things will just work out for me. If you say that, there will be a price extracted from you because the days are evil. He's not saying God will do it. He's saying the days will do it to you. The evil things going on. Now, I probably don't need to spend a whole lot of time convincing you that today, here, now, that we live in dangerous times. You know, I mean... Financially, some of us are in debt, and uh, we're, in fact, we're so much debt we can't figure out how we got there, we can't figure out how to get out, and then the economy comes along, and it just gets worse and harder. I mean, this is a difficult time we're in, and I don't have to tell you that. Morally, it's the same way. Marriage the same. How you live with your kids, the same. And he's basically saying, because we live in dangerous times, be careful how you walk. Pretty simple. Okay, verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish or careless, but, but contrast, but contrast. Understand what the Lord's will is. Now this is a tricky little Greek word where he says understands. Sunyami, it, it basically is, is Paul, Paul is commanding us to understand. Now this is not like in your math class when you know, a teacher would say, okay, go up, you know, go up to the board and um, work the problem. And you get up to the board, and you're trying to work the math problem, and you're looking around because you really don't understand it, and you don't get it, and you're trying to figure it out, and you're taking a little bit too much time, and the teacher would say to you in the back, come on, Terry, understand. And you're thinking, you know, you can't just command me to understand it, and it works. Okay, That is not what's going on here, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Of course, you were all math wizards, and you probably had the correct answer at the math board. But I mean, someone can't command you to understand. You don't understand? I command you to understand. Now you do. That just doesn't work. That's not what Paul's doing here. This word is something different. It, it comes from a... It does not mean perceive... It comes from a root word that means be together with and possess. In other words, stand up and accept and embrace what God's will is for you li- your life. That's what you're supposed to understand. And it's not perceive. It's stand up and embrace. Stand up and possess. Embrace what you know in your heart is God's will for your life. As it relates to your money, your marriage, dating relationships in your time. He's saying, I want you to stop deceiving yourself, stop playing games, stop pretending, and face up to what you know God's will for your life is. Paul is saying, be honest with yourself. 
because you know what's on the other side. You know it's dangerous, and you know you've got to be careful. You know, what he's saying here is pretty much to these people, and maybe to us a little bit, it's kind of like a two-by-four upside the head. You know, because you and I all have a tendency sometimes to play as close to the edge as we can. I mean, <laughs> it's just, well, maybe you don't. I do. I have a tendency sometimes to play as close as I can. There's a speed limit on the freeway, and this is such a minor, stupid example. Free, speed limit's 70. I know that if I'm doing 73 or 74, they're going to wave me off. They don't care. They're going to wait for the 10-mile-an-hour guy or the 20-mile-an-hour guy. They don't care about the 5-mile-an-hour. I've, I've got a friend who's a, well, he's a retired state patrol officer. And when we would be talking about driving on the freeway, I would always refer to it as the fast lane, and that would drive him crazy. You know what the fast lane is? Do you know what the fast lane is? Sinners. There's no such thing as a fast lane. There's a left lane. <laughs> That's how he would do it. He would, it would drive him crazy. And um, we have a tendency to play along the edge. And uh, we know exactly where the edge is and how close we can get and how much we can move over to the edge without falling off into the abyss. And um, we know where the abyss is in our lives. We know where the drop-off is financially. We know where the drop-off is relationally. And our tendency is to sometimes to dance on the edge and say, you know, hey, I didn't go over the line. I didn't touch her. I didn't go into an unsafe area. And um, Paul's saying, look, you live in dangerous times. Stop flirting with the danger. Stop it. Face up to what you already know in your heart God wants you to do and be. And he's basically saying, quit messing around. And he goes on to uh, verse 18, and he says, do not get drunk on wine. Now, full disclosure, I don't have any trouble with this scripture. I don't have any trouble with this particular guardrail because I don't ever get drunk on wine or any alcoholic drink. And I'm not standing up here to, to say that I'm your example or I'm your standard. Um, I, I don't want to be. But I, and I'm not also wanting to flaunt or be pious. I'm just saying to you, this particular uh, guardrail that Paul is teaching, I don't struggle with it, this particular one. I'll get my turn in the weeks to come, I'm quite sure. But I'm going to go off on a rabbit trail, and I'm going to ask you to stay with me on this. Because I'm going to say some things that um, I've been in the church a long time. I've known a lot of godly preachers, really intimately, in, in this denomination, in other denominations, in other churches, and... I know what they believe. I know what they live. I also know what I've heard in sermons. And I've never, I can say, I don't think I've ever heard what I'm going to say to you ever preached in a sermon before. Makes me a little bit nervous. Makes me want to have a drink of water. Um, (laughs) So I'm going on on one of my rabbit trails. And you have no choice, but you're going with me. So, um, but I want you to stay with me through the whole thing until we get to the end of this topic. Because I think that I want to be very careful here as I read the scripture, do not get drunk on wine. And I think you need to be very careful too that you do not extrapolate this and declare some, some other conclusion or some other definition from what this scripture says. Because this scripture does not say that drinking alcohol is a sin. It doesn't say it. You know, um, I, I didn't know I'd be teaching this message today, but a number of weeks ago, we had some fun on 9-11, and we had Kids Day, and that was a, a sermon that I was looking forward to for a couple of months because 
That was the one, if you recall, we taught about um, this argument in the early church about circumcision. People thinking that, okay, you can be a Christian, but first you have to have a little surgery. And the men are saying, okay, honey, you can join the church, but I'm going to sit in the car and wait. I've got to think about this some. Remember that? About the standards that Christians have a tendency to set, that somehow we want to say Jesus plus, and the plus is the stuff that we can accomplish, we're already accomplishing in our lives, we want somebody else to do it. And... Um, there was quite a potential there for a huge split, but, but it got resolved properly when the, um, when the leaders of the church realized that, oh, you know what, we can't put the burden upon these guys that neither we nor our fathers could keep. And so we had that message, and uh, I had a, a gal come up to me after that message, and, and here's the conversation a little bit that she and I had. She said, you know, I was, I'm still dealing with the message because... Now, I didn't say a word about alcohol that day. I didn't. I don't think I even mentioned it. Um, But she came to me and she said, I heard your message and I realized that my entire life, my entire Christian life, any time I would see a Christian or hear about a Christian who would be having a beer or a glass of wine, I would think they were in sin. I'm not so sure anymore, is what she said to me. And so we went on and had a conversation. And I said, yeah, that's that's a uh, common bump for Christians to deal with. And it's understandable because the abuse of alcohol causes a lot of problems and a lot of hurt. But Jesus' first miracle at the wedding feast, they ran out of wine and they asked for his help and he says, okay, go get some jars, fill them with water, bring them to me. And he prayed over and says, hand it out. And it was the best wine the best wine. And I know that there are some teachings out there that uh, suggest that he made grape juice. There's really, really no grounds for that. There is, it's, 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 it's an untenable scriptural position. In fact, the scripture teaches that he made the best wine. And in fact, when that scripture, if you go back to that passage and read it, and it says he made wine, um, the word I think is a Greek word, oinos, and it's the exact same word in this verse we just read, do not get drunk on wine. Do not get drunk on wine. It's got to obviously be alcoholic. You can't get drunk on water or grape juice. There has, to be, um, um, there has to be alcohol in this wine or you can't get drunk on it. It is the exact same Greek word when Jesus turned the water into oinos, into wine. And the word oinos, there's lots of different words for the beverages that they would drink. This particular one really comes from the root word of effervescence. It, it was actual wine that he made. And that's, that's the concussion. In our church culture, it's really common to say, okay, drinking is off limits. The problem is, how could it be a sin if Jesus was handing it out at the wedding? It can't be. It can't be a sin. Now, anybody who... Um, Maybe I have just really jumped up and down on your toes. Please forgive me. That's not my intention. Um, and if you, anybody here feels like I've just handed out licenses to go drinking, that's not what I've just done. Because I'll say this. There is no place in this book that a loss of control is condoned. Nowhere. So... And that's the problem with alcohol because drinking in excess has the ability for 
our control to be lost. It gives our control away. And that's where the problem is. I know for many people in this room, for people in my own family, alcohol, the abuse of alcohol, has caused significant hurt and destruction in life. For Lisa and me, um, we have, have had to deal with it with uh, relatives, close loved ones, and it has cost us decades of heartbreak. So I understand the hurt and the scale. And what's really common is people, particularly Christians, who are trying the best they can to live righteously, who have experienced that kind of pain, they just say, okay, boundary, yes or no. It's alcohol, yes, alcohol, no, and it has to be no, and anything else would be wrong. And they, they build an understandable, rigid line. And that's fine for people who want to take a stance for themselves. In fact, there are scriptural examples where that was done, um, where Nazarites would take a vow. And that doesn't mean that that's a requirement or something that even that the Lord suggests. Um, so that common reaction, and, and people do that. Lisa and I had this, this uh, we have, the, we have cl- some close friends that we've known for decades, and we have a family tradition. Um, we go away and we take a Christmas picture in, at the mountains every every year, and it becomes a Christmas card. And um, one of the things that's our tradition is we make what we call Mount Rainier soup. It's not called that, but it's called Mount Rainier soup because we take it every year to Mount Rainier, and uh, it's made out of tomato juice and onions and green peppers, and you put it on the stove, and you get it all hot, and there's like a cup of wine. There's some wine in it too. And it's really good, especially when you've been out in the cold snow and um, it's just really good when it goes with the other stuff. You're, 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 we have this tradition, the M&M's, the Mount Rainier soup, the, the works. Well, we, uh, we went on a picnic with these close friends down to Ocean Shores. And this has been a long time ago, probably 30 years ago. And um, this uh, couple we were with were, are Christians. Um, he's a, he was a graduate of uh, Northwest Bible College, which is an Assemblies Bible College. And they're close friends. And we're down there having our picnic, and we said, hey, you want some tomato soup? She says, yeah, sure. So we pass it all out, and we're drinking it. He goes, wow, this is really good. Yeah, we think it's good. Um, of course, by that time, the alcohol's all cooked out of it. But that's, but, but that's where some of the flavors come from. Wow, this is really good. What's in it? Da, 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 um, tomato juice, da, 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 wine. And if you could have seen the look on his face, he was crestfallen, heartbroken, he poured it out, and he said, I've never had wine across. I've never had alcohol past these lips. I never wanted to my entire life. You've ruined that. <laughs> I chuckle now because, you know, I've had 20 or 30 years to um, get over it. <laughs> but it was an important standard he had set. And we had no intention, had no idea. I wouldn't have given it to him if I had any idea. The point was that it was his own standard. It wasn't scriptural. It was just a stance that he had said, okay, if I stand on this side of this line, I will be, I will be able to maintain myself in righteousness better. This is good for me. This is not a mandate from heaven that somehow it gets for me to drink. And yet... The, the culture present in the church can do that. The culture here can say, alcohol is wrong. You're not supposed to ever touch alcohol if you're a Christian especially. And here's you know, what happens. When we Christians 
take something that seems like a really good idea and it seems like it might be supported in the Word of God, but it's not actually supported there, but we proclaim it as if it, as if it is, it lacks the power and the verifying um, supernatural punch that the true Word of God has when it goes into someone's heart. It lacks that. So if we say to the world, it's a sin to drink alcohol, then the next thing that happens is people get they feel condemned and they get scared away because the, the, the Lord's not honoring those words. God, God honors his word even above his name. Did you know that? Psalm 138, look it up, Psalm 138. He says, I honor my word even above my name. Psalm 138. But he's no under, under no obligation to honor your words and mine. <laughs> That's the thing. So even if we are right-hearted and we tell someone this, it, the Holy Spirit doesn't come in behind. You know the Holy Spirit talks to the unsaved too? The Holy Spirit, you know, if you tell someone, they'll proclaim the gospel or something true about the word of God, the Holy Spirit comes in and verifies it in their soul. He says, that's really true. Don't ignore what, what, what this person's saying to you. But if you say to someone, the Bible says it's a sin to drink alcohol, Holy Spirit doesn't show up there. So, in their mind, they're thinking, Okay, I don't agree with that. I don't know if that's really in the Bible or not. Don't think so. Um, they're just not too sure about that. So here's their, their choices. The best they can think about you is that you're just a little bit off, a little bit lost your relevance. The worst is that you're a religious wacko. That's where you'll get categorized. I don't want to go with either one of those, and I don't want you to either. Part of the reason we're doing this message today and part of, I think, where the Lord is taking us is because I have to tell you, as I was preparing to share this with you, I had a little bit of a, of a weepy moment with the Lord um, because he started to show me some things that were going to be happening in these communities. These communities, not just Rochester proper, but where you work, where you go to school, where you play cards with somebody on Tuesday evenings, where you play softball, those places where you have the answers and you have hope and you have truth and you have the ability to make a difference in someone's life and you have got to be under the power of the Holy Spirit to be effective. And it's really important that if there's any extra stuff that's on there that's not the pure, pristine things that the Lord wants to do, you're not in sin. He just wants to get us sharp. He just wants to have us the most effective tools. And I was just, the reason I think I got weepy was because I could see where we will be making a difference, where you and I are going to be making a difference in the days, weeks, and months ahead. i just convinced about it. I'm just convinced about it. And the Lord doesn't want us projecting things onto people that are, that are not his word. Um. I'm going to go one extra little topic on this and then we'll get back off the rabbit trail. I think a good reason for Christians to be very careful about their use of alcohol, first it tells us not to be drunk with wine, but there's another whole topic that impacts this this issue. Um, Culturally, it's really common in the church to view drinking alcohol as wrong. It's common to think that way. It's not correct, but it's common. And so um, there's a a reference in 1 Corinthians 8 where we're we're taught to be very careful. It says basically not to stumble our brothers who are weaker. Here's what that means. 
I'm somewhere at dinner, and um, I never really developed a taste for wine, so I can't. This is a, I won't get this right, but but there's a certain food, and the perfect pairing is some Bordeaux, something, <laughs> whatever. There's some 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 wine that's the perfect thing, and it. It's just a little wine with, with the dinner. There's nothing wrong with that. But sitting in the restaurant over there is someone I know from the church who is brokenhearted because their marriage is falling apart because their spouse won't put the bottle down. Do I grab it because it's lawful for me to do it and go ahead and sip it with my dinner because it's not going to hurt me? Or do I say, oh, wait a second. If I drink this here and in this setting, it's going to break that person's heart. I don't want anything to do with it. I could tell you this too. There are large international ministries that you would know that have policies that I'm going to describe to you. Here are what some of those policies are. They've conceded. I'm not going to tell you the organizations because I don't want to speak for anybody else, just like I don't want anybody else to speak for me. Okay? I don't want you all to go out from church. Pastor Terry says that it's not a sin to drink alcohol. Because some people, that will hurt them to hear it that bluntly. They need to hear this, so this is why they need to hear the message. But there are organizations, their policy is this, to the leaders in the organization, it's not a sin to drink alcohol, just don't do it publicly. Because you never know when someone there will know who you, who you are. And you're the chairman of this organization, or the regional director, or you're a pastor in such and such a setting. And so they will see that and it will become a stumbling block for them. So what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 8 is that you should not be a stumbling block for your weaker brother. Now that's not to be judgmental of their weakness. That's meant to say love them enough to care, care for them enough to not stumble them. That's what the scripture says. So I'm not here saying to you, hey, the, uh, the release is on. Everybody, let's all go out and have a beer after church. I'm not <laughs> suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that because that would stumble people. It would hurt people. But neither do I want you and me living under a legalism that was never intended by the Lord and certainly not verified by his word. There's something that Jesus said in John 8, and he says this, basically a paraphrase. Nothing, there is nothing that ever sets anybody free except the truth. He says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I knew that talking about this today in this culture, this culture, is risky for me because there could be some very conservative people here who have just decided over years of Christendom that alcoholism is a sin or alcohol, drinking alcohol is a sin. And so this is risky for me because I've never heard any preacher I know anywhere stand up in front of their church and say, there's no scriptural prohibition from drinking alcohol. It's not a sin to drink alcohol. And I'm saying that to you. This is culturally risky for me, but I'm standing on the word that says that it's the truth that sets you free. And if there are people in this room who have struggled with this topic, they know it's not a sin, but they feel like they got to hide it because others in the body of Christ would judge them, be free. Be freed from that kind of bondage. That is not the Lord. Now, I've been as direct as I think I can be 
and I hope I've been close to enough in terms of my sensitivity to, um, to walk you through something that um, maybe you weren't signing up for when you decided to come through the doors today. <laughs> Forgive me if I've pressed you. I own this. I own the decision to preach this today and to take this stance. And I'll be right out there after service if we need to talk, okay? So <laughs> I'm serious. I, don't, I, I mean, if I've gone too far with this, I really want to own that. And um, so anyway, so I'll say this too. Last bit of the rabbit trail. My ministry experience with, with um, drunkenness, people who have given away their control to alcohol, has been 100% negative. It shows up in things like, you know, wife, you know, physical abuse, tragic accidents with kids and adults, fights, date rape. I mean, name it, and I've had to deal with it that has related to drunkenness. So for me, this is a very easy illustration. Don't be drunk on wine. I don't struggle with that, and um, like I said before, I'll get my own turn in the days to come. So anyway, Paul's introducing this idea, and uh, back to the idea of guardrails now. If uh, there's going to be anything else you hear, try to stay with me now, okay? Um, Let's get back on the guardrails. He said, let's be honest, because we know it's down on the other side of the guardrails, and it's something that nobody wants, so let's set up some guardrails and some conscience. uh, So so if we have a crash, it's a crash of our conscience, not the kind where there's body parts, heart parts down there. And the first illustration that he uses... Is not the use of alcohol, but the abuse of alcohol. So he says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Now, that's a great word. You guys use debauchery a lot in your conversation. (laughs) Debauchery basically, you know, um, it means indulgence, giving yourself so much indulgence that you lose control. It's a loss of control. It's like, so Paul is about to explain that drunkenness is a guardrail. There's one right there. And he's talking to Christians, and he says, I don't want you to get drunk. He's saying, set a personal standard, a standard of behavior. And, now, and, and what he's arguing here is that getting drunk is foolish. It's irresponsible. He says, I want you to decide not to get drunk because it leads you to something you don't want to be a part of. In fact, it leads you to something that most people would agree is something you don't want to be a part of. So he's saying, so Christians, establish a guardrail, and your guardrail is this. I'm not going to get drunk. Hardwire your conscience into the issue of not being controlled by alcohol. Put into blunt terms. So that if you're ever out sometime, or you're out you know, some night, or you're some event, or somewhere, and you start to realize it, wait a second... I don't like the way I'm starting to feel. This isn't right. And that would bother you enough that you say, okay, oops, I just scraped a a guardrail. I need to back up. Just need to back off here a bit. That's what he's teaching. Deciding no to drunkenness is kind of like establishing a guardrail. And as you read the, the Bible, none of this should come as a surprise to you. You know, whether it's lust or alcohol or greed or anger or food or material possessions. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can have a loss of control involved. Anything that baits us towards what we don't need to be involved in, for example, anything that baits us, causes us to lose control, your Heavenly Father's against. Why? Well, you'd think the same way if it was your kids. 
If you saw something affecting your children, you would think the exact same way. And that's what God does. Because on the other side of that is disaster. Paul is saying, any area of your life where you have a tendency to hand over control to something or to somebody, you need a guardrail. And since alcohol by its very nature can lead everybody to give up their control, we need to set up a boundary called drunkenness. So, you know, fair question is, God, would, would God stop loving me? You know, if I get drunk? No, that's not what he's saying. That's, he's saying it's a guardrail. I think he chose this particular one because it's so common. And it's just one illustration. Because he's saying, be careful how you walk because these are dangerous days. Listen to what he contrasts that with back into the scripture, verse 18. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. God wants to become the preeminent influencer in your life. When God comes into your life, the Holy Spirit starts to influence you in ways that you haven't experienced before. And the Lord wants you to hear him. He'll prompt you. He'll guide you. He'll direct you. He'll nudge you. But he doesn't ever scream. He doesn't ever throw a temper tantrum to get your attention. It's these little gentle nudges a still, small voice. And he, and he does that in our conscious, and he does that, and you already know it. You already know it's the Lord. <laughs> and, you know, admittedly, none of us plan to mess up. Nobody says, okay. We're getting married today. I, I know in two years I'm going to really mess this up. Nobody, nobody goes to the altar thinking that way. But people don't think about how to not mess up. They don't think how to build guardrails. People never plan to uh, mess up their bodies or you know, do the things that drug abuse will do, but they don't plan to not do it because they haven't built guardrails. And I just want to say a couple of things that we're about done. It would be unwise for you to insult yourself by saying, well, God will protect me. This is how God protects you. This is how God protects you. He's teaching you how to be protected by him. You know, you can say, well, I'll just be careful, but everybody says that, right? Everybody says, well, I'll just be careful. God says, be careful how you walk. These are dangerous times. You need personal standards that become a matter of conscience. (laughs) I've gone behind guardrails that said that before. I'm not proud of that. It's in my temperament. Because I figure... There must be some reason to go to the edge there. There's <laughs> so when one of your pals says, what do you mean you're not going to do it? Is that because you're a Christian and I'm not? You say, no, no, it has nothing to do with you. This has something to do with a decision I made that's good for me. It's better for me if I just don't go there. I mean, you can borrow all the money you want. But I know for me, this is, I'm, on my, I'm on my limit, and I just can't go there. I didn't show up for my bachelor party, <laughs> which kind of broke my heart. It still breaks my heart after 36, 5. How many of them? See, 1970, 36. <laughs> because I knew my best man, my best friend. That's my best friend now. But I knew my best friend who was my best man really well. And this was another great reason for a beer blast. And I knew that. And I said, hey, listen, 
I don't want this to become another reason for a bunch of guys to get drunk on beer. He said, hey, I'm the one that's putting this party on. I said, I, I can't let you use me as a reason. I won't be there. <laughs> I didn't go to my own bachelor party. A bunch of guys went. And it was exactly what I didn't want it to be. It broke my heart. But sometimes you've got to draw that line. Lovingly, I probably did it really immature because I was young. Grr. And as we've been, you know, going through this area today, I, I just have a hunch that maybe you've been thinking about some area in your own life. It might, be, might have nothing to do with alcohol. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's money. Maybe, who knows? Maybe you're considering something. And the Lord's saying, it goes down there if you go that way. My hunch is that Whatever came to your mind about this, this is not prophetic and I'm not declaring this is scriptural, but my experience says that if the Holy Spirit works during these moments, I know the Holy Spirit does, the Lord might have been signaling you some, to, to, to some things that maybe you need to start thinking about planting a guardrail. And the thing that the Lord has been talking to you about during this sermon is probably where he wants to begin. And between the time you stand up and before you get to the door, you already know what it is. You don't need five more messages. You don't need me to lay this out for you scripturally. The Holy Spirit's already working. And I'm going to encourage you to act on that. It's personal and it's private, but I'm going to encourage you to do that. And here's the payoff I want to pray. Scripturally and personally, nobody has ever regretted building a safety guardrail. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for grace. I want to thank you, Lord, that you set us free with the truth. I pray, God, that um, I want to pray a point of sensitivity, Lord, for anyone here who has really um, maybe struggled with some of the things that I've said today. Lord, I, 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 I don't know how to ask for this in any other miraculous way than to say, God, whatever has been said here that pleases you and honors you and your word, let it linger. And whatever here was flesh and my weaknesses as just being the vessel, cause it to fall away. I pray, Lord, that, that what you promised about setting people free, the truth setting people free, will be put to work now. And anything that I've said that doesn't do that, Lord, you just cause it to fall away. And Lord, prepare hearts. Prepare hearts for where you want to take us. I pray, God, right now over the things you maybe have been saying to your sons and your daughters, the little whispers, the loving, sweet things. And I ask God for you to gently lead us where you're taking us. I know that's the way a shepherd works. I pray, Lord, for, for I want to ask God for ministry in this room too. I know, Lord, there are people here who need a touch on their physical body. There's either been an injury or an infection or a sickness or something's broken. And maybe not for some of us, but maybe for a loved one. It happened in our family this week. In proxy of people here who are hurting and wounded who need healing, I pray over um, one who fell and had a broken hip this week and was already carrying the weight of a couple of terminal illnesses. Lord, I pray for mercy there. Let, nevertheless, Lord, I pray 
for healing to enter into circumstances. I pray for wholeness, for encouragement where discouragement has taken root. Where there's depression, where there is darkness, I pray, Lord, for sunlight. I pray for hope. I ask God that this room would be full of people who have experienced the good day of the Lord. God, I pray for the building of relationships. I pray, Lord, for the building, not just of guardrails, but the building of safe places, places of encouragement and life and of hope. And God, since I mentioned debt today, we need you to open up the, door, the windows of heaven like you've promised. I pray for daily bread for the people in this room. I pray, Lord, for daily bread for those who come here and they just don't know how to give. But, Lord, you might be signaling them to trust you with their finances. I ask God for you to open up the windows of heaven there. I pray for daily bread. Even though this church family is in great health financially, we nevertheless ask for the daily bread needs of this church family. God, for the words that have been said, Lord, now we give them to you. I I pray, Lord, for the supernatural, the, the work of the Holy Spirit to carry this through to its completion. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. I've asked Eric.